So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life. The only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details. Hello, and welcome to Everyday Connection Now with your hosts, Nikki Leach and Richard O'Shields, bringing your inner light to your everyday life. Welcome, everybody to this edition of Everyday Connection Now. I am, yet again, Richard O'Shields, and far to my left, do you notice how sometimes it's far and sometimes it's not? Anyway, far to my left, Nikki Norlock. <laughs> sometimes you're just like right here, and you, of course you're not. You're always over there. I am. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't over there when we were in Costa Rica. That's true. And in that case, you were on my right. Okay. It threw me off for the whole week. Yeah. Because you've you almost very, always been on my yeah. left. I don't know why that is, but <laughs> because it's geography. I'm in Phoenix. You're in Quebec. It's George planning, man. Yeah, that's it. Don't complain. Just whatever he does. <laughs> Just run with it. It works. Um, there's not much really, really to banter about today. We've kind of taken a, a three-day hiatus, uh, even though it's, it is, yeah, it's Everyday Connection now, but today happens to be a Monday, so we have already done our morning show. However, uh, I, I spent most of my weekend just resting and relaxing. The only really cool thing that happened today was I got the finished PDF, the final draft. I was going to say, there's that one T-tiny little... <laughs> news item <laughs> from this tiny. afternoon that you got your one finished, tiny little detail uh yeah third edition second edition third, edition. third publishing some, some your all new truth that really has your all name on truth. it and really says it's a true story yeah yeah, it, what, yeah it's, it's a crazy true story um it's an awesome true story and it'll blow your mind kind of true story but i just you know what let's not spend too much time talking about that i just do want to take an opportunity though to give a shout out to my publisher brian and his wife laura for the intricate little details that they have added into the layout of the book that really speak to the energy behind the story i have to say i'm truly blessed and honored to work with a man who understands my work on such a deep level as to be able to throw in little things, little special touches, and then deliver it to me without me having to verbally list everything I want and, and to, to be able to get it in my inbox, look at it, and go, yeah, that's it. Um, his, his knowledge of my work is exceptional and and. The care that he takes is is far exceeding my they, expectations. So I just want to. They yeah. really will, in, in my experience, and I haven't published with them. I'm not um, a novelist or writer, at least at this point. Um, but we've had Brian on the show. Uh, 
I've talked with him on several occasions. Uh, very intelligent fellow. And yes, it's a, a smaller independent publishing house. However, he, uh, you know, because you hear dozens of stories of, well, I didn't like the options out there to publish my book, so I started a publishing company. And his wasn't quite that quick, and it is, he has really learned the craft to the point where he has some uh, university professors that have moved their work from the university press to his label. And, uh, yeah. I mean, they would be able to... Stealing authors, left, yeah. right, and center from big-name publishers. And... and um, <laughs> Uh, it, 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 I'm not sure you could pay for what uh, Laura and Brian do. I'm not. I, no. I don't know what how it would get valued. You can't. Um, no, no. But you, you can have it dollar, you, right uh, over there at Grave Distractions Publications. Because you know books, yeah, they can they can be grave distractions. I've had many a sleepless well, night because a book was good that I started in the evening. <laughs> it's so true, right? How many times have you stayed up and just like watched the sun come up and gone, oh man, I did it again. You know, and that's, that's the mark of a good author, definitely. And, um, but this is the mark of a good publisher and a good publishing team. The, the attention to detail, like I said, is, is exceptional. And I just, he, he never ceases to blow my mind. Like, and, you know, I mean, I can't wait till you get a copy in your hand, Rich, because you're going to see the back. The back cover alone just speaks volumes. The little intricate details that he added into just the back cover. It's like, oh, you know me so well. So that's my shout out for tonight. And now let's shout out to our guest because we have one. Absolutely, because we, we, should probably we talk. digressed a little. And, and, <laughs> and so he's passed the, passed the patient's test at the, you know, master's and doctorate level. But that's okay because he has some of those uh, somewhere in his past stacked up. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, we can do that thing, you know, author. And it, I'm going to go with uh, lawyer turned peacemaker, Doug Knoll. Welcome, Doug. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. Uh, thanks for carving some time out to come and share with us. That is our pleasure, sure. We do love <laughs> well, new playmates. Thank you. Keith. Sounds great. Listening to you guys talk, it sounds like you guys have a lot of fun. It's the only rule. <laughs> 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 we didn't get to that, I guess, in the, in the pre-show uh, warm-up, but that's oh, no, no, quite no. literally the only rule no, that no. we have on the show. I'll yeah. to talk to my booking agent about that. No. <laughs> awesome. So, um, I have a big question for you. It's important. It. Yeah. Doug. I'm listening. Who on earth are you? Okay. Pardon? Who on earth are you? <laughs> what? Let's try one more time. Who on earth are you, and what do you do? What do I do? I serve humanity, basically. Um, and I serve it as a, a peacemaker and a teacher, and hopefully by some of the work that I'm doing now, a, per, a, a person of inspiration to inspire others to go out and do service in the world. So I think that's in a nutshell what I do. Um, the journey is, has been an interesting one. I, I, uh, I'm a lawyer um, and was a trial lawyer for 22 years, and had a on, a on a parallel path 
that I never believed would intersect with my law practice, I entered into the martial arts and uh, eventually became a secondary black belt. And at that time, my teacher told me I was done. I was too violent, too arrogant, too full of myself, too dangerous, and that he would never accept me back in for further training until I mastered Tai Chi, which is a death sentence because you never master Tai Chi. And so I... As a dutiful student, I was 42 years old at the time, and uh, I went off and found a Tai Chi teacher, and, and the first thing I learned was that there are two paradoxes in Tai Chi. The first is the softer you are, the stronger you are. And the second is the more vulnerable you are, the more powerful you are. And these are fundamental truths of the universe that, as a kick-ass trial or a secondary black belt, physically intimidating, six foot one, 225-pound big guy, uh, found very, very difficult to understand. But I practiced and uh, slowly began to understand these concepts until one day I was staying in the courtroom cross-examining somebody uh, in my own inimitable, aggressive, annoying, arrogant way. And the thought struck from me out of nowhere, what the hell am I doing in here? And so I finished the trial, which I won, and took off on a planned vacation and went, uh, one of my many interests is whitewater rafting and kayaking. And so we had a trip planned with a bunch of friends up uh, on the Maine Salmon, which is in central Idaho, which is about a, it's about a 10-day trip through um, the River of No Return wilderness, the Frank Church wilderness, really beautiful, big rapids, lots of fun. And I spent the, the, the trip all by myself on my raft contemplating how many people I'd really served as a trial lawyer over the past 20-plus years. And at the end of the trip, I could only count five people that I felt had actually come out of the process, the litigation process, better than going in and where I had really served them. And this is after you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases. So I Lots decided, of quote-unquote winning. Actually. Yeah, won most. I mean, I yeah. won big and lost big, but I, didn't, I won far more than I lost. And uh, so anyways... As it turns out, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I live up in the mountains of the central California, halfway between Yosemite and Kings Canyon National Parks. And I was driving down out of the mountains to my office in, in Fresno, California, and to my law firm where I was a senior partner in a major law firm, and I heard the one and only public service announcement for a new master's degree in peacemaking and complex studies, which was being offered at a local private university, Fresno Pacific University, which turns out to be the West Coast Mennonite University. And as you probably know, the Mennonites are one of the three traditional Protestant peace churches. And um, so I went down there. I caught my interest, and I went down there, and it, it, the the Jesus stuff kind of turned me off, but um, everything else turned, got me really intrigued. And I thought, well, why not? So at the age of 40, um, I guess I would have been 47, I became a full-time student, graduate student, carrying 10 units per semester. At that time, I was also a full-time law professor, and I was a full-time trial lawyer. And I think it was all of that that led to my first divorce. <laughs> but that's another story. <laughs> Anyways, after the second day of the first class, I walked back to my, I went back to the firm and, and uh, walked into the office of our firm administrator, and I said, John, I need some new business cards. <clears throat> and he said, really, yeah? And I said, no. I just need the cards to say something different. And on my card, very traditional, it said Douglas E. Noel, attorney at law. And I'd scratched out and blue inked the attorney at law, and I put underneath it, peacemaker. And he looked at it, and he said, you've got to be kidding me. 
because I would have this pretty fierce reputation as being a real warrior. And I said, no, no, I think this is, I want cards that say this. And he said, he looked at me and he turned white and he said, I can't do this. Now, mind you, I was the second largest earner in the firm at the time and a senior partner. And he was telling me, you know, his, his, basically his employer, I'm not going to do this. So there were a whole bunch of partner meetings around this whole idea of Doug Noll becoming a peacemaker and half the firm loved it and half the firm hated it. And so I made a deal. I said, well, I'll continue to practice law until I finish my degree up and then we'll revisit, revi- revisit the, the question then. So as it turns out, um, those that were afraid of peace decided that peace had no business in their practice. And I left on interesting terms in uh, on October 31st of 2000 and on the November 1st of 2000, I opened up my peacemaking practice and I've never looked back. And since then, I've helped more, I generally as helped more people in a month than I've helped helped in 22 years as a trial lawyer solve their conflicts. So that's the fun foundational story of what has led me on a, a really fascinating journey, um, which we can talk more about. But that's basically well, what I do. what. That's a really good question. To who on earth are you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, from somebody who's been through the system on the receiving end <laughs> of the hard-hitting lawyers and um, whose life was changed due to me having the fortunate, blessed opportunity to be exposed to a peacemaking judge, a peacemaking lawyer, and a peacemaking detective, I can tell you that that energy in law would be a great benefit to many people because a lot of the times all these people need is a second chance. And it's very hard to get that second chance when you're being slammed from all sides and being told what a bad person you are. So, absolutely correct. The law, I mean, we are, we, we are blessed in North America to have a, a, a fairly robust and independent uh, judicial system, which is one of the reasons why we have the freedoms we have. But that doesn't mean that the system is perfect. It has a lot of flaws in it. And, it, and it's particularly flawed when it comes to protecting the oppressed and the, and the poverty-stricken. And um, I've witnessed that that firsthand in my prison work, and, and which we can talk about. Um, but will. if you if, if you run across a, a, a lawyer, a detective, and a judge who are all interested in resolu- uh, reasonable resolution rather than through litigation, then you were indeed blessed because that's a very very rare um, constellation of stars to be found in the judicial system. I, I was. I was extremely lucky. Um, I'm well aware of the situation that I put myself in. I'm well aware of the multitude of angels that stepped into my life and helped me get out of that situation. And it wasn't just, it didn't just stop at the lawyers and the the judge. Um, The parole officer was absolutely astounding. Um, He was so much more interested in the person I was than what I had done. And um, the counselors, every single person, every step I took, every single person that I was gifted with from the system were actually a major asset to my personal growth. And I 
could I would not be here today or writing the book that I'm writing, doing the work that I'm doing without the contributions of all those people, which is why it really touches me that you've taken this journey and you've taken all your knowledge of law and you've married it with with a really deep understanding for for the need for resolution and and just to talk conversation uh, and that's really what's lacking a lot of the times is that people aren't asked those key questions and that's that's how it started for me was that the detective himself asked that key question he looked at my life and said this seems your acts seem out of alignment with who people report you to be therefore there must be something that we don't know so i need to know so i can help you and it was at that moment that i realized that i had an opportunity to save myself and all i had to do was be honest and and trust this man who had my life literally in his hands and he didn't let me down yeah i can t- i you're you're very grateful for and hold a lot of joy for the, all of that i can tell and it, it oh, but yeah. it is in in defense of the legal system it it sort of wasn't really designed it, it was designed as some sort of a penal system it wasn't designed to uh educate people on communication and and conflict resolution because you just assumed that people learned i don't know at home at church at yeah <laughs> somewhere i there's always that somebody else's does that's someone else's department right. feeling that i get um right and and there are a lot of people i think that go in with really good intentions and just it's such a um a, a mess that those good intentions can get lost um well right we have actually there, are, you know, we have two two really two very different systems, both Canadian and United States. We have a we have a civil system, which allows people to deal with um, their private rights between them, and then we have a criminal system, which has to do with with offenses that the legislature or the parliament has determined to be a crime. And a crime is nothing more than what the legislature says it is. It's it's the, 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 calling a crime a crime. There's no magic to that word. You learn very early in law school that. Crimes were defined by history, not by any sort of magical, logical formula. So whatever we call a crime today is a crime because the legislature declares it a crime, not because there is some inherent underlying moral philosophy that says that it's a crime. And where we get into problems is is with the arbitrariness of what is called a crime, um, arbitrariness over, over um, punishment, and the idea that somehow punishment is... Uh, effective justice, which it's not, and and it has really led us in bad places, nearly bankrupting the state of California along with many other states. I mean, even today, with prison, with the so-called prison reform, which is really not reform at all, California still spends 13 billion dollars a year on prisons and only nine billion dollars a year on education. Um, so, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that the, theoretically, the law provides. A, a procedural justice and some constitutional safeguards that protect individuals against the power of the state, but that's about all. And after that, it becomes a pretty arbitrary process. And 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 you're right; it's not designed to make it, it's not designed to make peace in any individual case. But what it is designed to do is to is to render decisions around disputes. And that decision making power is important, um, but it is not a peacemaking process. That's for sure. 
But, uh, you know, we, we talked about the, the criminal justice system, the civil justice system, and um, I'm not sure what, uh, where exactly your, your legal practice fell, but in, in the last four years, you've, been, um, you've definitely been working with some folks that have been yeah. in the criminal justice system. Um, well, it says here, maximum security prisons, teaching murderers to be peacemakers. Right. So uh, that's an interesting story, too. I, as part of my master's degree studies, I was introduced to the concept of restorative justice. And uh, I became a restorative justice scholar and advocate and practitioner and teacher. I taught the very first course in, law, in any law school in the country on restorative justice. And um, it, restorative justice is um, a, a philosophy in which retribution has no place. It, the idea is that, the, that a crime or an offense injures the offender, the victim, and the community, and so it's up to the, the, the offender, the victim, and the community to come together and try to figure out how to solve that problem, assuming that all are willing to do so. It's a totally voluntary process. Anyways, I had generated a, somewhat of a reputation for my talk about restorative justice, my writings and, talk, and applications of restorative justice in places like the Catholic Church and clergy abuse cases and stuff like that. So in, April, in August of 2009, I received a phone call from a, very, a close friend of mine, Laurel Coffer, who was a mediator in Southern California, who was standing at her, at her mailbox, and she said, you got a minute? And I said, sure. So she read me a letter from an inmate at what was then the largest, most violent women's prison in the world, Valley State Prison for Women in Chowchilla, California. And... To summarize the letters, uh, the, the author, Susan Russo, was writing on behalf of a networking group composed of, of about 150 or 200 life inmates, women life inmates, at Valley State Prison for Women. And she was asking for uh, Laurel to come in and offer up mediation training because they had come to realize that uh, the violence in the prison was not going to be reduced by the prison guards uh, or by the prison authorities, and that if they wanted peace in the prison, they were going to have to do it themselves. And the problem was that as lifers, they saw their, their, the, their population as a community, and the younger women were coming in off the streets out of the gangs and with tough attitudes, and they were, they're called knuckleheads, and they were just stirring up all kinds of trouble because of their emotional problems, their mental illness and stuff. And the, and the women who were asking us to come in and train wanted specific skills on how to um, on how to deal with all of this, how to mediate disputes, how to bring about, how can we turn this prison population to, into a place of peace? So Laurel called me and said, what do you think? And I, I thought about it for about a nanosecond, having no idea what it was going to do to my life. And I said, yeah, I think if this is for real, we, we should do this. So it took us about six months of, of uh, we were virgins. Neither one of us had had any experience in the criminal justice system. We were both civil trial lawyers before we turned to mediation. And so it was a real eye-opening experience just learning about the prison bureaucracy. And uh, we're a little more cynical about it today than we were four years ago. But it took about six months of, of working through the bureaucracy very painfully, slowly, just incredibly wasteful, waste of time. I mean, it was unbelievable. But eventually we got in front of the chief deputy warden of that prison, a woman by the name of Velda Dobson Davis, who is now retired, but is an amazing human being. And she listened to us for about five minutes and said, yeah, you guys, we should do this. Uh, when do you want to start? So that was in February of 2010. We decided to start in March of 2010 with our first group of 17 women. And we only work with lifers. And now we are 
And this is totally pro bono. We don't get paid a dime for this work. We pay for everything out of our own pockets, including a lot of mileage. Um, no foundations want to support us. They have no interest in, in providing services to life inmates, especially women life inmates, who, as it turns out, are at the bottom of the sociological pecking order in our society. Uh, so we are now in three maximum security prisons in California, including one men's prison. I just finished training uh, 17 men as our first male mediators, um, all lifers. And we are in the L.A. County Jail, women's division, and we are doing a pilot program in the L.A. County Juvenile Division, working with seven, we just finished up, Laurel just finished working with eight 17-year-old gangbangers. And, and we are, we, through these years, we have developed these processes, um, teaching these very, what, what most people would think are irredeemable, evil, uh, heinous animals. They aren't. They're, they're really beautiful human beings, as it turns out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, teaching teaching them how to be effective peacemakers, and they are some of the most powerful peacemakers I have ever worked with in my life. We have they have stopped riots, prisoner riots, dead in their tracks. They have mediated disputes that have taken months to resolve. They have interceded between prison guards and inmates. They have I mean they have they have mediated family disputes, their own family disputes, and family disputes of other inmates. Um, in fact, our first group of women were so powerful that they were awarded in the fall of 2010 the Southern California Mediation Association Peacemaker of the Year Award called the Cloak Millen Award, named after um, Richard Millen and Ken Cloak. Both Richard's now passed, but Ken and Richard, Richard was a good friend, and Ken is a good friend. And uh, it was a very high honor they received uh, as peacemakers for the, for the work they had done, even in the short time that they had been trained as peacemakers. So that's become... Um, a really significant, important part of my life's work right now is working with working with uh, inmates, teaching them how to be peacemakers. And as a result, some of the, the women who were lifers have actually gotten out because the, when they go before the board, the board of, the board of parole, um, they are completely different human beings than the board of parole has seen before because as they have learned to become peacemakers, they have transformed themselves and allowed their inner light to show forth in ways that no one, least of all Laurel and myself, ever expected to happen. And it's been a wonder to behold, and it's been deeply gratifying and and also deeply humbling to watch the process. So that's... And the the beauty... Oh, the the beauty. The beauty of this that I see, um, and this is, I'm I'm actually, I guess you could call me an ex-con, and my husband is an ex-con. Um... Big bad biker boy, ex-biker boy, who's now a trucker and has every intention of writing his story because he's told me that story from the opposite end where he's been in the system. Um, He's done the hard time and he knows that there's an opportunity to work from inside the system if there could just be a way to cut through the red tape and and the thing is, is that he's a really, really good man. And knowing him now, the man who's become, I understand what you're saying. And the beauty of it is, is that these women have chosen this and they have initiated this personal growth. And therefore, they will never fall back. This is not something that 
you know, there it's a it's not a temporary fix. This is they've chosen to change their lives in such a way that can't be reversed. They're not yeah. going to ever fall back into the space that they were before because they know now the power of self-worth and that is the key right there. Right. They I, know they're of worth. They know they're of value. You're absolutely correct. I mean, it's not that they don't make mistakes and, and don't... Um, oh, we all make mistakes. Sure. But you're right. That they, have, they have transformed themselves in ways that where they find huge value in their lives where, where before they, they saw themselves as having no value. And same thing with the men. We've seen actually with the men are actually easier to work with than the women, which we were... We didn't know what to expect when we started working with men, but they they also suffered from great um, problems, low self-esteem, um, self-loathing. Um, many of them, I mean, when you hear the stories of what led them to their crimes, uh, you just, I mean, you know, it becomes very obvious that we breed criminals. We don't, we, I mean, we, we make criminals. We don't breed them. You don't, babies are not born as criminals. They are, they are turned into criminals by their, by their parents or lack of care and the abuse that these kids take. I'll just tell you one quick story of one man who is in his, now he's, he's in his seventies, eighties. He's been in prison for 50 years for murder. When he was three years old, his uncles would take him out, and he's Louisiana, and he's a Cajun, and he has, still has an accent. Um, and when he was three years old, three, between the ages of three and five, his brothers would take him out into the bayou, put a rope around his waist. One brother would hold it, tie the rope onto a sapling, and the other uncle would go out onto a skiff with a shotgun, and they would dunk him in the water near the bank waiting for the crocs to come up. He was basically crocodile bait. And when the crocs came up, the, the brother in the skiff would shoot the crocodiles. And then they haul a kid out of the water. Uh, imagine what that does to a three-year-old brain. Another story, just so you understand the kind of people we're working with. A young woman, um, she actually says prison's the safest place she's ever been in. When she was th- she when she was three years old, she was she was sexually abused. When she was seven years old, her mother addicted her to heroin and started prostituting her at fourteen. She did. She murdered her first John at 13, and about her on her fourth murder, she was she was caught as a heroin addict, prostitute at 14, and sentenced to life without possibility of parole in prison. These are the kinds of people we're working with, and you wonder why they are the way they are. Um, oh, yes, what they what they I, did was um, what they did was heinous, but on the other hand, <laughs> what was done to them was worse. And I, uh, I guess. Coming from coming from being in that desperate situation with a back against the wall, I understand where they're coming from on a very deep level, and um, it really tears my heart out to think that so many young people, and it starts when they're young, have fallen through the cracks to the point where our prisons are now bursting. Absolutely. And as my as my husband says, the system as it is is not set up to fairly represent or provide the help that these people need to be able to get their lives back. And I'm not saying that the system as it is needs to fall completely. I think that every system is made up of individuals. 
And like Rich pointed out earlier, a lot of those people don't go into that kind of work, that line of work, without a desire to help and to heal. And I think that it is the red tape that has prevented that in the past from happening. And I see that it's changing. And But it's still, I just, you know, and it, it's not just happening in Canada and North America. It's happening right around the world where there are children and young adults being put into situations where they simply have no other choice but to fight their way out. And that's what they do because it's fight or flight. And for whatever reason they have to fight back, they're going to fight back because it's instinct. They're trying to survive. That's all they're trying to do. They're just trying to make it through another bloody day. And, but we, we miss that along the way somewhere where we stopped seeing them as human beings and we gave them labels and we came up with ideas like not being able to rehabilitate. This one's a lost cause. Um, and I, I just, I don't see that as ever being a truth. I don't believe that given the proper nourishment, support, understanding, compassion, and room to grow that these people can't get their lives back and be a contributing member to society. And who better to be a counselor or even a police officer, quite honestly, than some of these people who've been through the system because they know what these young people are going through. They understand. And if they can get in there and get them early and and not put them in a cage, but put them in a place where they can, they can learn about themselves, where they can learn that mistakes are made, but we're all human and we all make them, but that there are people out there who care, and that's all they need. They just need somebody to care about them. They need somebody to believe in them. I think that, I, that, that, of course, is absolutely correct, and the devil's in the details. Um, the, our, unfortunately, our, our, since the mass incarceration movement in the United States that began in the, in the 1980s in the Reagan administration, well, we've seen two things. We've seen the Reagan, Reagan did two things. One, he stopped funding mental, mental uh, he stopped federal funding for community mental, mental, be, mental illness beds, mental institutions, and at the same time, he... Um, from pressure from the unions, uh, actually, uh, started uh, allowing for mass incarceration by changing drug laws and encouraging states to uh, change their drug laws. And as a result, the number of beds for a a chronic and acute mental illness patients dropped dramatically in the 1980s and and inversely uh, and directly proportional to that, the um, number of people incarcerated grew. And today in... California, there. If you include addictive disorder as a mental illness, which I do, you've got over 75 to 80 percent of the people in prison are mentally ill, and with no treatment to speak of. And you know, it, it's tough. It's really, 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 really tough. And we have a we have a bias towards uh, towards punishment as a calling it justice. It's not justice at all, but it's called justice to make people feel better. 
it's a form of moral disengagement. Uh, and to your point about the kids, we morally disengage from the kids because the anxiety around children in poverty being oppressed and raped and brutalized and addicted to heroin by addicted parents is so overwhelmingly difficult to accept and and cope with emotionally for the for the normal human being that you've just got to put a wall around it and then you as you point out Nikki you start labeling and they become animals and you dehumanize them and then it's very easy to put them in prison for life and lock them up and forget about them um, because it's less painful to do that work emotionally than it is to confront the social inequities and the deep poverty and the deep abuse that exists in the underbelly of our culture uh, that that really is inconsistent with the values that we say our culture is based upon. And people would rather lock up the oppressed than um, and call them animals than to deal with the structural problems that, that bred the allowed those people to become what they are in the first place. It's a very sad commentary on our society. Well and it's 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 against that one of those two principles of Tai Chi about you are the most powerful when you're the most vulnerable. It's far less vulnerable to, you know, have a bunch of people in uniforms with guns and tasers this garbage away, quote unquote, uh, than it is to go in there because you, 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 you can't help somebody else without helping yourself. You can't go through somebody's dirty laundry without some of your dirty laundry falling out. It, it, it's a vulnerable state. I'm going to go, uh, I'm not just going to go, I'm going to spend six months waiting through red tape in order to get into a room with murderers. They've killed someone before. I would not be there first. Um, and and I would imagine that uh, you were really blessed to have this group that was seeking it out to start with because I could see this, somebody wanting to try something like this and just getting a group of volunteers. Well, they probably volunteered to get out of some nasty prison duty and, you know, uh, because it... I, I knew a young man when I was growing up. I was real active at my church. I was a bit different person back then, but I was real active in the youth group and... And uh, Willie came when he could. When he was staying with his grandmother for the weekend, he came to Sunday school. And uh, I sort of made friends with Willie. Willie's father was in prison. Uh, his mother was uh, addicted to drugs, and nobody really knew where. And so he lived with his grandmother, and he was a great big teenage boy um, who had been in trouble off and on his whole life. His grandmother was not really able to she was barely mobile. She she just couldn't... I, I, she couldn't barely care for herself. She didn't need to be caring for anybody else. And so he was in a, one of these school for boys correctional schools and with the other, you know, criminal kids. And um, And I watched him become harder and colder and more enclosed and encased for four years. He was a really sweet kid. You know, I, my parents and I took him places together. He was a great kid. And by the time he was ready to be graduating from high school, he was ready to graduate to some serious crime. And uh, because the, the, even at that stage where there were supposed to be, you know, responsible adults supervising, and it was the kids running the, 
the jungle in there, and uh, because the the adults were frankly scared of them. And um, and that's a, I mean, who would think? You, you take a large population of people with uh, mental health issues and and addiction issues, and let's just throw them all in a big big tank and see how it turns out. You know. Uh-oh. And it, but it's changing. Must be break time. And um, it must be. <laughs> Doug. <clears throat> yeah. All right. Well. Gosh, I don't know. Uh, Firebird. We could do that. We actually, uh, we actually have a song from Larissa oh, okay. Stowe, uh, okay. who was with us on the show. That's called uh, "We Shall Be the Peacemakers." Ah and, yes, um, of course. That would uh, be a perfect song. Good call. Christian peace prayer song. So we'll uh, we'll go for that one, and uh, we'll be right back. So stick with us, folks.
Welcome back, everybody. 
Uh, again, that was our friend Larissa Stowe with uh, the Peace Prayer song, We Are the Peacemakers. Because what else would we play today? Uh, <laughs> and we were talking as we were wont to do uh, over the break. And uh, you mentioned in, in conversation critical thinking. And um, as somebody who was uh, very purposely taught critical thinking uh, by my father uh, and mother, my family, uh, and then didn't cover it again in school till I was in college. It, I don't understand how. Uh, it, it it seems to me that schools, if anything, should teach you how to think, not what to think. But we seem to have the opposite. They tell you what to think, and how to think is just don't worry about it. Well, it's interesting. You know, there, there's this. Uh, the core standards have now been adopted by the, the vast majority of states in the United States. It's a, a whole new emphasis on critical thinking. And there's a blowback that, that's arising mostly in the Midwest, where there's more ideology than there is on the coasts. And uh, the problem is that because the, student, the students are not used to have, having to think critically and use their brains, they're experiencing some pain, and the parents are getting angry because the kids are being held accountable and they're, because they're having to work hard. Ah, ah. And so now, heaven forbid. Yeah, there's this big uproar against the core standards that I think are an uh, absolutely essential corrective to to a huge decline in the educational system over the last 25 years. I mean, people. I'm 60. I'm 63 years old. I can guarantee you, there is nobody 20 years younger than me that was educated like I was as a youngster. No way. Yeah. Um, and- my no sisters way. are my sisters are uh, thirteen and fifteen years older than I am, so I really am almost more from your generation than as a fifty-one year old because I was a. Yeah. The, the doctors told my mom she couldn't get pregnant anymore, and six years later I came along to say na 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 boo boo. <laughs> uh, but, um, uh, but my parents were from the similar generation to to your parents. Uh, my sisters were the same age as both of my wife's parents. That was a bit odd. But it was something that was very important to my father. He rarely, if ever, would answer queries for me directly, unless it was something simple or something urgent. He would direct me to where I could go and find some information and figure it out. And then when he'd see me again, of course, it was, you know, well, what did you find? Oh, and then he would ask me questions to see if I really comprehended and I don't know that he was doing that purposely or if that's just the way that he saw the world, uh, the way that he act- thought everybody was, because I thought everybody was like that until I got out into the wider world. You know, I went to private schools, and I thought everybody thought like that um, because there's so much that just really has become almost society standards that just doesn't pass the giggle test when you look at it, try to look at it logically, reasonably, with critical thinking. The, right, the, right. You know, you can say, stand and tell people, question everything all day long, but if they don't know how to think critically, they, they can't get any farther than asking the question. Right. Anyways, that, it's, a, you know, it's, an, interesting, it's an interesting problem. Uh, all I find is that all these, all, these, all these conundrums, social conundrums, are all tied one to another. 
I want to go back to the prison project because there was something something that came out of that that um, I'm embarking on that I think might be of interest and could lead us down some interesting interesting um, t- pathways. When w- the curriculum that we developed, uh, this is an eighty the base the basic course from starting out at ground zero and becoming a full on mediator is an eighty four hour eighty four hours of classroom and probably another couple of hundred hours of practical work. So, I mean, it is an intense course, and not everybody makes it. Um, but we spend the first four weeks teaching our inmates how to listen. And I'll just tell you one story, um, because, because, that get, it, it, because it's just so powerful. We were, it was our first group of women, and we were teaching back in 2010, and we went into the training room and showed up, and the, one of the women was sitting in the corner, and she was quietly crying and we didn't know what was going on, so we went up to her, and Laurel asked her what was going on, and she told us this story. She says, I've been in prison for 21 years. I gave birth to my son just before I went into prison, or right after I came into prison, and gave him to my sister, who's basically raised him, and I haven't been there for him. I've written him every day or every week for the last 21 years with no response, never a phone call, never a letter back, nothing. So finally, two weeks ago, I decided to use the techniques that you guys are teaching us about how to communicate and really listen to somebody. And I wrote him a different kind of letter. And today, I received my first letter from him, and he's going to come visit me in two weeks. And I sort of sat there and said, wow, <laughs> We're, we, we are doing something really remarkable here. And we have had inmate after inmate tell us stories like that and also tell us that had they learned the skills that we taught them, uh, 20 years before, 15 years before, they would never be in prison. And what we've done is refined uh, a technique based on neuroscience that teaches people how to really listen. And one of the, a couple of things that are really interesting. One of the things that we tell our tell our inmates from the day one is listening is not conversation. If you're having a conversation with somebody, you are not listening. You're having a conversation. Listening is a completely different skill set than having a conversation. The second thing we teach them is, when you listen, ignore the words. The words have no meaning when you are doing deep listening. You're listening for a whole bunch more information. You're learning how to read what we call the emotional data field. And the third thing that we say is you never listen with your ears. You listen with your whole body and with your soul. And and we teach them how to do that. And what was really interesting is when we started teaching this to them, this is stuff that I developed in my peacemaking work over the years, and we refined it, actually refined it. I mean, teaching murderers how to do this is, teaches you a lot about who you are as a person and what you do. Uh, but, but we found that the women, the women especially had a really hard time learning how to listen because they were not in touch with their own being. They weren't in touch with their own essence. They weren't in touch with their own emotional stuff. And until they could get in touch with their own repressed emotions and their own pain, they didn't have the capacity to listen to other people. And what we've observed over the, over the course of training hundreds and hundreds of inmates is right around week five is when the switch, there's a light, there's a switch that seems to flick on. And we get all this resistance for five weeks and then all of a sudden something happens and it clicks and they get it. And that's when the transformation occurs. So 
I started I started taking this stuff that we, it, we had perfected in the prisons and started putting it into my mediation trainings, and then I started doing a whole course for mediators and peacemakers. Um, I go around the country teaching this, this kind of stuff, and I slowly refined it, and I just kept getting these amazing comments from people, and that's when I finally decided, okay, I'm going to put this online, and I'm going to teach the world how to do this. It's so powerful that um, I want anybody who's interested and can't get to one of my workshops, because I don't give that many of them, can get online and for 10 bucks learn how to do this. And so that's, that's the project I'm embarking on right now. How to deeply listen in a way that completely connects with another human being. And there's another cool thing. I know you guys are pretty deeply spiritual people. The other thing that I've learned about this is that when you are listening this way, you get you you it's what you as we all know what Eckhart Tolle saw is being in the now uh the power of the, the the present being in the present moment you actually step into that place and become completely egoless for about 15 or 20 seconds when you're in this process and that is an amazing state of being to be in that most people have never experienced and as i teach this and as people learn how to drop into this egoless state they transform themselves as listeners because they actually get in touch with their pure essence. And it's a physical phenomena that occurs that you can actually see it when it's happening. And when people do it, they can actually feel it and experience it and understand it. And it, uh, we filmed the workshop on April 5th of this year, which is what I'm using for the basis for the course. And I'm just putting the finishing touches on the course right now. now we interviewed a whole bunch of people about the experience and it was just these are people I didn't even know and it was just amazing to to listen to their experiences and and how profoundly touched they were by by what they had learned so we're taking the experiences that we've we've gained and we Laurel and I and myself primarily that we've learned in teaching these life inmates these skills and now I think we have an opportunity to teach hundreds of thousands of people how to completely transform their lives in ways they've never imagined by just learning how to listen. And we're not taught how to listen. We're taught in school to listen to the words, but the words have no meaning. How to really listen another human being into existence. I mean, how powerful is that? It's amazing work. I'm so blessed. I'm so lucky. It, it's extraordinary work. Um, we generally, and and I'm still as guilty of it as anybody else, we, we often listen to respond rather than to understand. Exactly correct. When, as I tell people, what happens in a conversation is that, especially if it's a, a conversation where it's argumentative, which is, of course, the kind of conversation that we lawyers are particularly skilled at, you're not listening to the other person. You've got 90% of your processing power is marshalling the evidence and gathering the arguments and putting together this devastating argument that once you get your chance to speak again will utterly destroy the other person with such overwhelming logic and flawless presentation of evidence that they will cower in defeat and abjectly get on their knees and give up. And about 2% of your brain is watching, paying attention to the noise and the flapping mouth, so when it stops, you know that it's time to take your turn. <laughs> and so the other person stops talking, and you start in, and what do you think is going on with the other person? Well, they're doing exactly the same thing. 90% of their processing power is marshalling the evidence and the facts to come up with this brilliant, brilliant argument that is going to be so powerful and overwhelming that the other side is just going to collapse in abject, abject humiliation that they even could even breathe the same air as the person who's making the argument. And 2% is watching for the flapping of the mouth and the 
you know, the word's coming out. The word's coming out. The noise and, being and, made. And, 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 but both, and both people know at a deep, deep level that they are not being listened to, and so they become more and more frustrated. And what we do naturally when we are not being listened to and, we're, and things start to get a little heated is we start to raise our voice. Why do we raise our voice? Why would you normally raise your voice? Well, if I'm on the Whitewater River and I've got to talk to somebody across the river, I'm not going to use a whisper. I've got to shout to be heard. And so that's what we do. Our brains naturally go to shouting. And, we don't, and so we don't know how to listen. And, and that's the source of mental illness. It's the source of addiction. It's the source of war. It's the source of conflict. It's the source of every human problem is not knowing how to listen to another human being. It's the source of everything. It's the core foundational skill, and it's not taught anywhere, to my knowledge, not effectively. And so we've been able to refine hey, this. Tech- Pardon me? I was just going to say, but it's so true. Um, it's one of the things that my mother taught me early on for all her weird and wonky ways. She always said, he who runs from a shout will strain to hear a whisper. And to watch her have a discussion with somebody when she was in her element, her voice would drop and it would soften. And the softer her voice became the more powerful her argument became. If she was screaming and yelling, it was not effective at all. But when she was on it and in it, and she would just, she wouldn't become confrontational. She would actually back off and she would start asking questions. And it was something that, that I've used myself several times. It's something that I've taught my daughter that, you know, if somebody is in your face, I'm being confrontational with you. Don't fall into that yelling back energy. Take a step back. Don't give ground. Don't give up your argument, but lower your voice. Lower your energy. Bring it down a notch. Allow them the space that they need to be able to express how they're feeling. And then talk to them. Don't yell back at them. And it works every time. I've never had it fail. So, so the technique that we teach is based on the work of neuroscientist Matthew Lieberman. And uh, basically what we tell people is that when you're in deep listening mode, uh, ignore the words. And the only, thing you, the only thing you're going to do is reflect back the emotional experience that your storyteller is having in the moment. So you're simply going to read their emotions. And you're going to say something like, you're angry, you're frustrated, you feel disrespected, you feel sad, you feel grief. And the intensity of your, the, the, the labeling of the emotion, the intensity that you use will generally match the intensity of your storyteller. Um, and you're going, you wait until, this takes about 30 to 90 seconds, and, and you keep probing for that emotional experience, and there are usually multiple emotions happening at the same time. Emotions come up in complexes until you get a nod of the head and they say, uh-huh, or exactly, or yeah, yeah, and you see a drop of the shoulders and a sigh. All of these are unconscious responses that indicate that you've touched them at a deep level. And when you are affect labeling, when you're doing this technique, it is, they're not listening with, their lang- with the language centers of the brain. It's, going through, it's not even going through the normal auditory cortex. It's actually going through a completely different part of the brain that's processing this information. And uh, as 
as Lieberman shows in his studies, it, it completely quiets down the emotional center of the brain and allows the prefrontal cortex to, to come back online. Extraordinarily powerful. But in order to do this, there are two things you cannot do. You cannot ask questions. Oh, are you angry? You cannot use I statements. What I hear you saying is that you're angry. No questions and no I statements. And that's really hard for people to do. Because when you ask a question and use an I statement, you're basically being self-protective. You're protecting yourself. And it becomes about your ego, not about the other person. So we teach people how to do this and watch these transformations occur. And it's counterintuitive because it seems like you're interrupting people in a conversation because we have these norms around conversations, how you're not supposed to interrupt. But interruption only occurs when it's about you. But when you are truly listening to another person and you're labeling their emotional experience, it's not interruption. And the listener, the storyteller, does not perceive it as storytelling. Um, I do this demonstration in my workshops and actually on the online course, you'll, you'll see, a, see a demonstration of it. And I do the demonstration and I turn to the group and say, did anybody have any comments about that and always and in this case person says that looked really intrusive and obnoxious to me looked very arrogant and rude and so typically i'll go around the room and say well how many people thought thought that and everybody will raise their hands yeah that was the rudest most obnoxious arrogant thing i've ever seen anybody do and then i turn to my storyteller who's standing up there in front of everybody who i don't know who we've just had this process go on and i said so what was your experience and the storyteller invariably says that was the most deeply listened to I've ever felt in my entire life. That was an amazing experience. No one has ever listened to me as deeply as you did right then and there. And I turn to the group and I say, so you see, you are letting your, the way you look at your social norms around conversations interfere with the ability to do deep do listening because listening is not conversation. And therefore, the norms of conversation do not apply as long as you are, doing, you are listening properly and, not, and reflecting emotions properly and not inject, interjecting I statements or asking questions. Um, and it takes, you know, then it takes practice time for people to get the hang of it and figure out that it really does work. Um, I taught this workshop in Tennessee to a bunch of Tennessee mediators earlier this year in February. And I got back to California on Sunday. And on Monday, I got an email from one of the participants and he told me, he wrote me this story. He said, um, Really, lo- this is a guy that I've known professionally for a while, and, and he said, when I got home, uh, I told my wife, Linda, about your work and sort of explained to her the theories and how it worked and demonstrated for her. On Sunday, we were having dinner with our children, and we have, they have two children, and one of their, we, we have a grandchild, a boy who's eight years old, and who's an Asperger's child, and Something came up, and the, her, his older sister got credit for a statement that he made, and he went into a rage. And Linda turned to him and said, you're really angry. You feel really disrespected. You don't feel like anybody listens to you, and you have a lot of sadness and grief about that. And he wrote, he said, he did exactly what you said he would do. He nodded his head. He said, yeah, yeah. He shrugged his shoulders and took a big sigh, and that was the end of it. Totally de-escalated him in 30 seconds. If we had not, in any other situation where this had come up, this would have been a 12-hour ordeal with him. And Linda handled it with your technique in 30 seconds. Thank you very much. That was amazing work. It's powerful. Really powerful stuff. It is powerful. And it makes sense. It makes complete sense that it would work. 
Yeah, well, I don't teach anything that isn't empirically based. And uh, so this is all based on new, new, new knowledge from neuroscience. I mean, it's neuro everything, right? Neuro this, neuro that. And it's gotten way more hype than it deserves. But I'm pretty careful about, pretty careful about how I use the science. And I don't, I don't make statements that aren't supportable. And I've got the studies to show why this works. And, um, you know, what I've done is taken the, taken the theories that have been developed in the labs and moved them into practice, which is what we did in the prisons. We took the science and moved it into the into the, what, what could be more of an intense lab to work in than a maximum security prison working with life inmates. If I could teach them to be peacemakers then, and teach them how to deeply listen, then I figured, you know, I could teach anybody. And it worked beautifully with them. I mean, in amazing ways. It, it, you know, it, I don't know if you guys saw the videos, but if you go to um, the Prison of Peace website, prisonofpeace.org, prisonofpeace.org, um, on the press and media page, there are a bunch of short documentaries, and the women talk about their work. And, I mean, it's profound what they say. Really, really powerful. So that's what motivated me to bring it out into the real world, the free world, as they call it, and teach anybody who wants to learn this stuff how to transform their lives. And I'm kind of thinking, I haven't explored this fully, but I think this might be a spiritual practice. So I'm going to be exploring that more and more in the months to come because I'm really intrigued by that. Because, you know, I'm... it certainly sounds like it's the marriage of our understanding now of neuroscience with some of the ancient teachings for conflict resolution that can be found within the indigenous tribal cult- cultures. It sounds like the perfect marriage between science and religion, or spirituality. Well, I'm not going to say religion because like, it's, it's far like beyond religion, sir. but... Yes, the talking circle exactly. is based that's around exactly what I'm I, well, that's, I think, inter- listening. It, it, exactly, and it's interesting you should, should talk about talking circles. We call them peace circles, and that's the next step. So we spend four weeks teaching our inmates how to listen, and then we get, spend a whole day teaching them how to do peace circles. And, of course, in the peace circle, uh, they have to listen, and then we require them to reflect back at the emotional level of the affect labeling. And... And so the circle keeper has to teach everybody in the circle how to do that. And peace circles, when they've been introduced into the prisons that we worked in, have been phenomenal in terms of how they have changed the culture of the prison. Um, and then the next, so, so the peace circles teach leadership. They teach peace, our peacemakers how to, how to be coaches, how to help people work through conflict, and how to teach people how to do this deep reflective listening. And... So you're right, that, and of course, peace circles are, have been around for as long as hominids have been on the planet, probably. Uh, and so it's a, it's, it's a very powerful process, a very ancient process, very simple and very powerful. And then from that, those who complete the, the requirements for becoming a peacemaker, which means they have to do five peace circles and observe two, then they can go on to mediation training. And then we teach them how to, it's a higher level of you know, skills to become a mediator. And then from there, they can become a trainer if they want. But the, 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 the key is listening. The foundation of everything, one ring that rules them all, to quote Tolkien, is, the, the, <laughs> is listening. And if you don't know how to listen, then nothing else works. And I, you know, everywhere I go, and all the con- I've worked in thousands of conflicts, and it always comes down to the fact that people are not listening to each other. They're afraid to listen. They can't listen. They don't know how to listen. Um, they're... They are escalated themselves, and so they've lost the capacity to listen. Um, and that's a cause of a huge, huge amount of grief on this planet. 
And if we could just get a small group of people really learning to be deep listeners, um, I think things things might change. I'm optimistic enough to think, think that things might change. And so now, you know, the opportunity is out there for people who want to learn, to learn in a very inexpensively uh, over, you know, the course of seven, I, I think the, I've broken into seven, seven video lectures between 15 and 20 minutes long or 30 minutes long. And uh, you do it with a partner. So it's five, you know, the 10, 10 bucks for a course. I've priced it really cheap. And and so if you do it with a trusted partner, not with a wife or a husband or an intimate partner. It's too intense for that. This is intense work. Uh, but you do the exercises and watch, do the lessons and with a trusted partner, a trusted friend, five bucks a piece. I mean, you can change your life for a cup of coffee. It's amazing. God, it's great to be a so much and fun. You, and you say, and you say <laughs> is, not to do it with a spouse, but I'm very tempted. Um, well, in my particular you could, case, you could do it with either. Because of yeah, you and then do it with well, a spouse. The reason well, that I don't. The reason that I don't want people practicing with their spouses is because this is when you start doing this, it is it is really intense work. And just like our women inmates struggled in the beginning because they had to cope with their own unresolved emotions that they'd had repressed for so long, as you begin to do this work, you begin to open yourself up and you become soft and vulnerable. Uh, and... Sometimes it depends on the strength of the relationship. Um, you know, if you've got a very strong, trusting relationship and your intimate partner is also your best friend and things are really, really, really solid, then you can ex- then exploring together this inner journey would probably be um, uh, okay. But most people don't have that kind of relationship. If there's any couple I know, it would be Nikki and Pascal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so well, with, well, with but, everything that we've been through, I, I, we do. He is my best friend. Then, Absolutely. Then, 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 then I would say, go ahead. Um, I can't make that recommendation because most people don't have that kind of relationship. Most people have sure. a broken relationship, and they're looking for stuff that they would get with this skill, and they will get what they're looking for in their relationship when they learn this skill. But they're, but the learning process is not one that they should take up with necessarily with with the person that they're most intimate with. Um, you know, there's always exceptions and people can try it. I just put the warning out there and let people figure out how to do it themselves. No, sure. I, I appreciate that. I have great appreciation for the warning. I'm just, I'm, I'm really curious to having, with him having been through the system and me having been through the system to see how it would work for us. Because certainly, you know, I, I, I do love to test everything that comes our way. It's the best part of my job is that I get to get <laughs> in there hands-on and, oh, and get course. dirty with it. Um, so, so, so I'm so going to have to check it out. Yeah, the, the website is itspuremagic.com. Itspuremagic.com. Right now, if you put in itspuremagic.com, you'll land on a, on a, on a little opt-in page where, for, you know, give me your emails uh, so I can get, tell you when the course is going live which, if all goes well, will be at the end of the week. Um, and I'm in beta testing right now, just making sure everything's working before I put the course on live. But uh, it's 10 bucks two pe- for two people, 10 bucks for two people, so that's 5 bucks a person. And, um, you know, give it a shot. I mean, for ten- I made it so cheap, it's totally risk-free, $9.99, totally risk-free. And, and I want people not to be... Um, 
frightened off from the course because of the cost. I want them to go in and, and, and invest in it and, and see for themselves whether or not this, this technique works. So, um, and if you want to, uh, Nikki, I've got your email address. So I'll, just as a sidebar, I'll, I'll send you the beta version if you guys want to get into it tonight or tomorrow. That would be I'll, awesome. Well, he's, he's I'll on send the road the, I'll send you the beta Friday. Link. I'll send, pardon but, me now? Yeah. I, yeah, so he, he's a trucker, so he's on the road till Friday. But yeah, I'd love to get into it. I, well, I really the, would. I want to I'll try send, this with him. I'll send you the beta link, and then you can take a look at it and start watching the lectures ahead of him, and then go back and watch the lectures again. You're going to want to watch awesome. the lectures two or three times. So I'll do that as soon as we're done here. And, but for everybody else, it's PureMagic.com, and if if people uh, people are listening on the radio, um, there is a if you call eight four four pure. Uh, Pure Magic, which is 844-787-3624, and just leave your email address. I'll make sure that you get get notified when the course is up and live, and you can then go in and read more about it and learn learn about it and decide whether or not it's for you. So, but it's puremagic.com. I'm really excited about it. I, I you know, I can only teach so many people um, by myself, and the Prison Project is soaking up a lot of time. So I really think the Internet's a wonderful thing for taking ideas like this and moving them out into the world in a big way. And if it catches fire, then hundreds of thousands of people can can benefit from it. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, but it'll be there for anybody who has the desire and drive to change their lives in a deeply transformative way. So... Absolutely, stuff. and the beauty—the beauty of it is because it's online, it's accessible anywhere Any, in the world, which anywhere, is to me anywhere. awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I'd like to see—I'd uh, like to see it become required curriculum for anybody in the diplomatic corps. <laughs> well, you know, I—I uh, I don't know. I know you wrote a book about. Yeah, I wrote uh, a book about that. Yeah, diplomats. It, uh, it would be—it'd be very useful, actually. Um, I was commenting with I was working with BBC during the um, the uh, Syrian peace talks in January, and and kind of coaching them on what was going on behind the scenes. And I read reports that um, and I can't remember her name. She is the EU chief diplomat, but I heard she was using a lot of this stuff. Um, in and the, all the reports were coming back was that that she was extraordinarily effective in the work that she was doing, and it sounded like. She might have been doing some of this, some of this stuff, which I thought was really cool if it was the case. So, anyways, but you know where we need it more than that? We need it in the schools. Um, we need teachers to learn how to do this, so that when a kid comes up and gets in the teacher's face, the teacher doesn't have any fear, but can deal with de-escalate the kid in 30 to 90 seconds, without any kind of fear whatsoever. And um, because right now, what teachers have a huge control problem. If, if kids become emotional on them, they don't have any skill sets to deal with that emotionality. So what do they do? They send them to the principal's office, the kid gets expelled, and that's the end of it. Well, that doesn't help anybody. But with these skills, I guarantee that when you master this, you can de-escalate the angriest person you can possibly imagine in 30 to 90 seconds. You can completely de-escalate them down to a calm place. I've seen it done. And I've done it myself. It's, it's amazing. Well, you mentioned earlier, and I kind of want to magnify for folks, is that the, the real problem is in these situations, if you, if you don't take that road to de-escalation, you tend to get escalated yourself. And then once you are, the, the, the facility to really listen and, and, and critically think is now gone from both of you. That's and, right. And, and so there's nowhere to go except either away from each other or, or to more escalation. And I see That's so right. many conflicts in the world that, 
it's obvious from watching them that that's exactly what's going on. You know, because it's like they're both saying stuff, but it, they're unrelated almost. That's they're right. not paying attention to what the other one has to say. And, and that's uh, right. I, I've said for a long time that the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is like two little brothers. Well, I'm you know, having a little fight in the playground, you know, the fingers in their ears going, no, 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 I can't hear you, no, 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 no. I mean, it really it, it is. And, of course, I, I believe when it comes right down to it, everybody just wants to, you know, have a safe place to live and be able to go to the movies on Friday night, blah, 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 uh, safe place for their kids. But but that aside the point, if you've got something that for resolution, this is how you resolve things. You don't escalation kills the ability for that to happen. Absolutely. And um, so that ability, that that's something Nikki and I both got. I my mother was always fast and loud and rah, but my father was the opposite. Like she was talking about, that, where he would get quieter and and. Uh, And he would yeah, explore. I, I can't. Yeah, he would explore how you know he would ask ask me something or you know what were you thinking, and depending on what I said, he would kind of explore that a little bit and go, well, that's I'm sorry to hear that. Often was part of the conversation when I was the one that was in trouble, and it was mm-hmm. weird, but you know, good in retrospect. Yeah. Well, these skills are so fundamental, and. Um, I have I've used them myself in as I said thousands of conflicts and watched inmates lifers use them in prison very difficult places to live to really powerful effect and I really do think that just a couple of simple skills like this if enough people practice them could could really begin to change just within our own communities you know if you think about the number of people that you can that you have daily contact with you influence and, and it just slowly spreads um, you know, virally, and and if nothing else, if you learn this skill and start using it, the people around you are going to be happier, which is going to make you happier, and you've just improved your own immediate local environment. And you don't have to worry about the world; just worry about making sure that your kids and your family and you and the, your friends are all being listened to properly. And and that's all you got to worry about, and everything else will take care of itself. It's amazing. Absolutely. Powerful stuff. Now, before we go, I have to ask the obvious question. It's a journalist in me, I guess. <laughs> Did you, it sounds like a silly question, but I'm curious. Um, with all this serious stuff going on and how you've changed, obviously have changed as an individual, did you ever go back to your teacher? No, I didn't. Uh, he is a um, – actually, I haven't seen him since I left in the 1990s. Uh, I hear stories about him. He is a brilliant martial artist and a brilliant martial artist teacher, one of the best teachers I've ever worked with. Um, just the guy was amazing, but he had a flawed personality. And uh, it was flawed in the sense that he um, – liked to live life on the edge and was not, um, you know, he wasn't respectful of his own body in terms of, uh, in terms of what he did. And so he's not a person that I would, I respected him deeply for his skills 
and for his knowledge and for his teaching ability, but I didn't really respect him. Or he's not a one. He's not a person that I want to hang around with and be with. Um, he was certainly not a spiritual teacher of mine. So, um, did you a pretty good turn sending you to the Tai Chi, though? Yes, uh, that was one of the great blessings of my life is is turning me turning me towards Tai Chi, and that led me into healing, and I became a healer, and that led me, led me into aerobic yoga, and the, uh, you know renewed my spiritual path. So you know this stuff all interweaves like a like an Irish weaving, you know, and uh, and and so I, but I and I you know as I think about that, what's really cool about my life today is that it's totally integrated. Everything I do supports everything else. I couldn't say that when I was a trial lawyer. I had two separate lives. I had the life of the hardcore trial lawyer and then the life of Doug Knoll, whatever Doug Knoll was. Um, but nothing was integrated. And since I've left the practice of law and become a peacemaker, my, my, every day my life becomes more and more integrated. And everything I do uh, supports and builds on everything else that I do. And it's just an amazing journey. You know, I don't have the financial security I used to have, but who cares? You know, I don't. I've been done the big house and the big car and all that crap. I don't need that anymore. A lot of you stuff. Know, to not all crap has to be. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot to take care of. But it, it it does. It reminds me. We often talk about you know, what is this your spiritual life and your normal life, or your spiritual life and your physical life, or your spiritual life and your everyday life? What is it's just your life. Exactly. <laughs> and and exactly. the sad thing is that for most people, they, they, they don't have the ability to integrate because, you know, they get jobs and they have to follow a career. And oftentimes the demands of a job are, are inconsistent with who they are as human beings. And that, of course, breeds anxiety and stress and unhappiness, and, and, you know, which they take home with them. And then that breeds stress in relationships. And it's, it, it's just sad to watch you know, watch people become unhappy. Uh, you know, I, I guess I'll, I'll say another great secret of mine is I don't own a tele- I haven't owned a television set in 20 years. I don't watch television, and um, you know, I think that's that's a huge, huge positive because um, one, I'm I'm, re- I'm required to actually interact with my wife, whom I love deeply, <laughs> and two, um, I'm not I'm not numbed out by the by the stuff that. Is, is broadcast out there that, that deadens people to the world. And I think that's a huge, I think that's huge. I think television is an opiate. And uh, I, th- I think that you would be pleasantly surprised um, because of my job. And this is an interesting twist in what I do. But because of what I do, I do watch TV because I am constantly looking for the changes within society that are often evident first within media. So when big media starts to change, that's when you really know that the change is occurring on a big scale. And so I keep an eye on that on a regular basis. And I've seen some absolutely astounding changes in media over the well, last couple of years, especially in the last six months. It's really been mind-blowing. Um, however, again, I always breed caution. People need to be discerning about what they're going to give their attention and their energy to. And that well, it's, it's and an important back, thing that people miss when they're yeah. sitting in front of the boob tube. You back know, when, I, back when I had a television, discerning. I... The television was always on. 
if I was at my desk doing something, um, Jennifer used to talk about that I, I had to get the TV on the right channel and then not watch it. <laughs> uh, because That's I was annoying. acting like I was doing something at my desk. But this humming, droning, and flashing lights was just always, yeah, yeah. always, always, always. And um, and there is something hypnotic and, and numbing about that. I um, I have a television again, uh, but I almost never watch it. Um, occasionally we'll watch a movie. Um, but when I try to watch regular television, I can't watch very long. It just doesn't, I can't, it just, uh, bleh. Well, so. you know, when I'm in a, in a restaurant or a bar, um, I am, I can't help myself, but watch how my eyes are drawn to the to the screen and the colors and the and the, the stimulation that's provided there and i can see how it just draws you in um and which is why i stay away from it because for me it would probably be addictive and i don't i don't need that kind of addictive problem yeah need- you don't you want to get me getting absolutely nothing done turn the tv on all that's day. right i've got too <laughs> much As I'm- yeah, you know, and and I've got these exciting conversations to have with some Absolutely. of the leading I mean, edge, I'm... cutting edge people on the planet today, and uh, I mean, really, we're we're really blessed with uh, our jobs oh, yeah. because we yeah, we do because this is you know, somebody could say, well, this is indigenous wisdom. It's been around. It's working, and it is desperately needed. And mm-hmm. and and if people can make peace in. 10% of the situations that come up in a maximum security prison, and I know they're doing way better than that, it's a huge thing. And the disintegration of the American family, to me, is the disintegration of interpersonal communication as much or more than anything else. I agree. And, I absolutely agree. Uh, you know, my parents were married for 63 years, and there was a lot of communications, and sometimes it wasn't entirely attractive. But it was never loud and boisterous and violent, and it was resolved, and the resolution was always awesome. So, yeah, I, I think that everybody violence, get out there and get it. Yeah, violence violence is a choice, and I think that when people don't understand what their choices are and don't have the skill sets to execute on their choices, violence 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 becomes the default. And once people start learning that they have choices other than violence, to deal with their problems and that they can cope with their anxieties and stresses uh, and fears uh, other than through physical, physical violence especially and even emotional violence, then lives start to change. That's another big lesson we've, we've learned in the prisons is that once we start showing inmates that they do have choices about how to deal with conflict uh, and that it doesn't involve violence, once they realize that we never tell them don't do violence, we say just make a good choice. Here are your choices. What choice do you want to have today? And once they are given choices and they feel empowered, they never choose violence. They only choose violence when they feel disempowered and they have nothing left. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true not only in prisons, but I think it's true in other human communities as well. And last, I think that, that's a fundamental cause of war. Last refuge of the desperate. Yes. Or the uninformed. Absolutely. Hmm. And, yeah. and, and who doesn't... Recognize that there there are other choices out there. Yeah, has to be part of the learning process. And uh, exactly. So, uh, big appreciation for you carving out your time, talent, and treasure to share with the world. Because uh, 
this um, this awesome stuff. It is it's it's amazingly powerful stuff. I can tell just from listening to the stories. Well, how many parents with autism spectrum children, Aspergers, whatever labels you want to have, would just fall on their knees to be able to have some way to de-escalate the conflicts that are an everyday part of their life because they don't know how to do it. Right, exactly. How many teachers would like to have power in the classroom so they can have the most raging hormonal teenager and be able to de-escalate that kid down to passivity in, in 90 seconds or less? What's that worth to have that skill? How many parents would like to be able to deal with a child who's having a fit and be able to de-escalate that kid down in 90 seconds or less? What's that worth? It's priceless. Yep. It's priceless. And the, and, and the skill can be learned. It's not, it's not that difficult to learn. It takes some practice. I won't kid you. It, it's going to take a little bit of practice to get some mastery. But it's doable. It's no, more, it's no harder than learning how to ride a bike. And just like riding a bike, once you got it. Once you got it, you got it. Now, yeah. learning how to ride the bike took a while. Sure. It wasn't easy, but it didn't take... Years, it might have taken weeks. Fell down, scraped my knee, but that's it. Got back on the bike. That's right. right. This is the same uh, thing. Same thing. And like you said, I I think it's part and parcel. Once people, to be able to have that deep deep communication, you've got to be vulnerable and open, which means your own stuff comes out and gets dealt with. Right. Transformative stuff. Right. So, anyways, if listeners listeners are listening and they're curious, if they go to the website now, it's puremagic.com, they can can download an ebook that kind of explains everything we've been talking about. I've I've written about a 30 30 page ebook that they can download for free. Just put your email address in. Then, with the email address, I'll let you know when the course is up and you can decide whether or not you want to do it or not. So, people can learn about this. I'm really, really, really interested in getting as many people as possible at least talking about this and playing with it because I, I think it'll really change lives. I know it will. I'm, I'm convinced. Absolutely. And we'll do our share of shouting from the rooftops because awesome stuff. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Absolutely. Everybody drop by itspuremagic.com or 844-PUREMAGIC on the phone. Uh, if you're listening on your iStuffs, we have a bunch of people that listen on their iStuffs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, and so a, it's it, awesome the, that you've got both ways. Yeah, just leave a, leave a message on the phone and we'll, we'll, we'll input the, uh, the email manually and make sure that you get the information. Um, yeah, and, and uh, let's see what happens. I mean, it can't. It seems to me that we live in a laboratory and, uh, on this planet Gaia, and we 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 learn to fail and fail fast, and until we succeed, and and so that's what this project is all about: teaching people that peacemaking is not kumbaya around the campfire. It is actually going out and doing things, and learning skills. And being in a certain way that is not difficult to do, but does require some training, requires a certain set of skills. But once you do it, you've got it forever. And then you've got choices. And once you have choices, you're empowered. And once you're empowered, you can be soft and vulnerable to be strong and powerful. And what a life that's like. It's amazing. And we can all sing. We are the the peacemakers. Yeah, I don't... And yeah, well, I mean, the the ripple effect of each one of these people that learns this skill and then goes out into their it. world is incredible. And uh, so again, thanks so much for uh, carving out your your okay. time to come and be with us. Thank um, you. Everybody, get by itspuremagic.com. You also will find links to uh, that and prisonofpeace.org on our website on the archive of the show at everydayconnection.me. 
but you probably already know that because you're here. But do drop by there and sign up for our mailing list um, and uh, so that we can keep you informed about these awesome conversations that we get the pleasure of having. Um, so thanks again, Doug. Thanks, all you guys, for listening. Um, join us for our morning show on the Flow Cooperative from 10 to 11 Eastern Time AM. Uh, and, of course, join us for more of these fantastic conversations on Everyday Connection now. But until then. To our mother, to each other, and especially to yourselves, stay connected. Have a great now, everybody. Spiritual guide and divine adventure diva, Angela Mandato, invites you to explore not just the inner workings of your heart, but the world from whence that heart derives magical and mystical inspiration. Angela offers a wide range of experiences, including classes, sacred ceremonies, journeys to sacred sites, and personal mentoring, intended to manifest miraculous expressions of joy and awaken the inner wisdom inherent in every human being. In July of 2014, Angela will be co-hosting the Sacred England Tour, an adventure that will take you back in time to an ancient and sacred land drenched in the layers of energies from long ago. See England through the eyes of the people who know it and love it best, experiencing private visits to sacred sites such as Stonehenge, the healing waters of the Chalice Well in Glastonbury, and touring the countryside on your way to the land of Avalon, home to the Arthurian legends. To learn more about this and other amazing opportunities to explore our incredible planet, visit spiritquesttours.com. To connect directly with Angela and learn more about her work, drop by angelamandato.com. That's Angela, M-A-N-D-A-T-O.com, where miracles cease to be the exception and become the expectation. Join Jane and Rick again next time. Until then, visit their website at everydayconnection.me and subscribe for news and updates. Stop by their Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash everydayconnection and join the conversation. You can also subscribe on iTunes by searching for Everyday Connection Radio. Subscriptions are free, just like your Everyday Connection.
and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details.